book is full of rules and laws and regulations, and uh, I, I hope that you've been seeing how relevant those are for us. Uh, rules and, and regulations are, are necessary. We know that uh, because what is a household without rules? What is a company without regulations? What, what is a community without some laws? You, you see, if you want to be a kind of community, you need some laws. If you want to be a household that actually raises children in, in some way, preparing them to be adults, they're going to adult one day, you need rules. Uh, otherwise, there's, there's chaos, there's confusion, nobody knows what expectations are, you're not sure what to do in certain situations. And so God doesn't want his people to be guessing what he likes, guessing what he is like, uh, but instead he, through laws and regulations, he is putting boundaries around uh, the crooked hearts of people, uh, to be frank. We, our alignment is off, so God uses laws to kind of steer us and keep us in, in the lane versus veering off into oncoming traffic. It's for our benefit to, uh, to be steered. And so the laws in Leviticus serve that way. They help us to see his heart. They help us to understand, as our Heavenly Father, what he expects of his children. And then that kind of ends in chapter 26 with promises of blessings and obedience. And we saw that last time. God is saying, hey, if you obey these laws, then I will bless you. It's going to be awesome. No one's going to hurt you. You're going to be protected. You're going to dwell in that land. It's going to be peace. Um, and no one is going to ever dare try to kick you out of this land. But if you disobey, I'll kick you out of this land. There are consequences for disobedience, and so blessings and consequences for obedience or disobedience. And then uh, it turns to chapter 27, and it's weird, because chapter 27 doesn't belong really with the rest of it. Uh, chapter 27 it doesn't really deal with necessarily blessings and consequences, but it deals with vows. If any of you have ever thought to yourself, or maybe you didn't just think it to yourself, but you actually said it to God and you dedicated something to God, maybe you dedicated your child, maybe you dedicated your house, um, maybe you dedicated your service, or a portion of your income, or something like that. And you said, God, this is yours. I'm going to do this for you, and this is for your name, and you use this. Uh, God knew that it would be in Israel's heart to do that a lot. And so he wanted to discuss those things. Vows, oaths, God, I'm going to do this. I commit this to you. And uh, I hope that by the time we're done with Leviticus 27, you can see its uh, relevance to you, because I think at heart, uh, we're, we, we understand the nature of vows and oaths. So let's turn to Leviticus 27. It's the last chapter of, of this book, third book in the Bible, if you're looking for it for the first time. And what I'll do is I'll read just the first paragraph, one through eight, kind of get that out in front of us. We'll summarize uh, the chapter. And then we'll discover how it relates to 
our lives today. As each section starts in Leviticus, you can tell it's a new section when it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and it's kind of a new conversation. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver. And for a female, the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be, between, shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can offer. Again, not necessarily the stuff of uh, your run-of-the-mill devotional. Uh, not necessarily the passage that's going to be on the back of uh, a Christian a birthday card. Uh, congratulations, you're 60 years old. You are worth less shekels now. You know, that, that would be a horrible uh, birthday card. But if you look at it, you can see how practical it is. Somebody says, I'm going to dedicate my service to the Lord, and God is putting a valuation on it. And you might look at it and go, what, do old people not count? Do babies, well, how come babies aren't worth much? How come females are worth less than males? Well, how much grain can you haul? There, there's the valuation. Because the dedication of service is not some ethereal, I'm going to pray a lot. It's, I'm going to uh, be a harvest worker. This is an agricultural society. And so it's based on ability to labor. So very practical. Shekels, of course, is the currency they're dealing with. But I, I want you to notice how there's nothing here, and if you read the rest of the chapter, there's nothing here about what a vow is, how to make a vow, uh, some special formula for making. It just assumes, you know, y'all are going to be making vows, and let's just put, let's just put some parameters here. Um, and he explains different kinds of vows. In the first eight verses, it's looking at personal service. Somebody's dedicating their service, their work, their ability to labor. In verses 9 through 25, uh, people are, maybe they vow or commit or promise to the Lord their belongings. It might be uh, an animal. It might be their house. It might be their land or a portion of their land, verse 16. And so there's different ways that they can get, give things or give of themselves to the Lord in a special way through a vow. But the entire chapter, the emphasis is not on how to make a vow or even what a vow actually is. It just assumes that people are going to make vows. It assumes you kind of know what a vow is. It's some commitment to the Lord that you're making. But the emphasis in the whole chapter is how to get out of it. If you dedicate yourself to the Lord and you're like, oh, I, I need to get out of this, well, how old are you? That's how many shekels you need to get out, right? Uh, if you dedicate an animal for an offering, you can't get out of it. That needs to be offered. But if it's an unclean animal that can't be put as an offering, 
uh, then the priest can value it, and it's up to the priest to decide how much. If you dedicate your house and then realize, oh, actually, I shouldn't have done that, well, you need to buy back the house with a 20% upcharge. You know, is, is God just a, a, a mean? Well, well, no. He wants you to think twice about putting your house up as a commitment. He didn't ask you to do it. So think again, because if you need to buy that house back, it's 20%. And so you see that God is, through these regulations on vows, he's kind of upping the empty vows. In fact, I wouldn't know this, but if you read the commentators and those who do uh, this kind of historical uh, research, the valuation on the persons is, is really high. <laughs> uh, he's, he's highly evaluating uh, the, the, the service and labor of what it's worth for each person because he wants you to think twice about doing it. That's why. And God is very gracious in providing a way out, uh, but you'll notice that his way out is not to just say, don't worry about it. I know that was dumb. You shouldn't have made the vow, but just forget it. No, not just forget it. It needs to be bought. It needs to be redeemed. It would be unjust. It is unjust to make a commitment to God and then just let the commitment disappear as if you didn't make the commitment. So the chapter is full of ways to get out, and none of those ways is just forget about it. All of those ways are something has to be paid. There has to be some kind of redemption happening to get out of that vow, meaning God didn't ask you to make the vow, but once you make the vow, God is holding you to it. Throughout the book of Leviticus, we see that uh, the reason why we have these rules and these laws and these regulations is because God is saying, I am a, I am a certain way, and if you're going to be my people, you have to be a certain way. I'm holy, so if you're going to be my people, you're going to be holy. If God is a promise keeper and you're going to make promises, you're going to keep your promises. And if I especially keep my promise to my covenant people, if you make a promise to your covenant God, you shall keep your promise to your covenant God. It reflects poorly on God when we don't. So, nothing here about you shall make a vow. Nothing here about even what a vow looks like, but there's a lot here about the seriousness of making vows and for the people of Israel, what it looks like to redeem it or to get your property back or your service back or whatever it is that you vowed to God. And then in verses 26 to 33, this, this is interesting. You can't vow something to God that already belongs to God. Now, you might go, well, doesn't everything belong to God? Well, yeah, and the Old Testament makes that clear. But certain things are especially God's, right? Like your house belongs to God. You get that. Everything belongs to God. All the houses you look at belong to God, whether those people recognize it or not. God is over all things. But there's something about this church, isn't it? There's something about this church. You might play a certain movie at your house that you wouldn't play in the sanctuary. Not because technically this is a holier place than your house, but, but we recognize that this is God's building. In a, I mean, it's, it's His in a different way than other things are His. And that's fine. That's a biblical category. What I want you to understand with me is why He would have to end this chapter with a portion that helps Him understand that you can't devote something, look at verse 28, something to God that's already His. Or, or back it up to verse 26. A firstborn of animals, which as firstborn belongs to God, no man may dedicate. Why? He already told you the firstborn is his. Verse 
28, nothing devoted to the Lord of anything that he has, man or beast, shall be sold or redeemed because every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. See? So God has ownership over everything. But in the sneaky hearts of God's people, they might go, I'm going to dedicate something to God and then dedicate something that's already dedicated. It's kind of childish, but he, he saw it coming. Why would they do that? Why would anybody say, I'm going to dedicate this to God? It's already dedicated, but you know. Well, not because if it's, it's of any use to God, but because we like to make vows and boast in them. We like to up the ante. It's not enough to just serve God. We want to make a vow and want to make a commitment. Now, God doesn't say don't do it. He's just saying if you're going to do it, do it genuinely. And don't be sneaky about it. You remember in, uh, I think it was Matthew 7, when, when Jesus condemned the Pharisees for using vows and oaths to try to get out of their responsibility to their parents. Sorry, parents, I know you took care of me your whole life, but I can't house you. I can't pay for a nurse to take care of you. I dedicated that portion of money to God's work. No, they didn't. It's just sitting there until the parents die, and then they can redeem it and pull it out. So, so throughout Scripture, you see this theme of not saying you can't take a, make a vow, but if you make a vow, don't make it cheap. And, 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 and he's saying that here at the end of 27. Look, I, I know it would be just like you to vow something already dedicated to me. <laughs> don't do that. Make it real and make it count. So we can't vow what's already his. I think the question that's pertinent is whether vows are still valid today. Should we or should we not make vows today? And of course, we're not talking uh, necessarily about vows that we make or promises that you make. Yes, 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 kid, I'll, yes, I'll take you to uh, ice cream later. Just let me finish my work. Yes, we should keep promises. That's true. These are vows that are made to the Lord. This is when you're standing there and going, God, I will fill in the blank for you. I'm going to dedicate this time or I'm going to dedicate this thing to you. This is for you. I'm going to use it for you only. So that is the context here. And I don't know about you, but the first thing that came to my mind was Jesus saying, don't do it in Matthew 5. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you've heard it said, you shall do this or not do that, right? And he quotes some Old Testament law, and then he says, but I tell you, and he, he uh, what should I say, he doesn't reinterpret it, but he helps them understand it the correct way, okay? So Jesus isn't taking the Old Testament law, trashing it, and saying, I'm going to give you some completely different law. The old one was useless. He's saying, you've been doing it wrong, let me tell you how to do it correctly. One of those is oaths and vows. And, and he tells them, you love to swear by heaven, swear by earth, swear by your, your, the hair on your own head. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm telling you, don't do that. And so it looks like he says not to do it. And then Jesus also ups to Annie there in, in, in that uh, sermon where he tells them that if, if you don't just, if, you, if your yes is not just simply your yes, and your no is not just simply your no, and you always have to prop up your truthfulness by, I swear, 
Everything else I've said may not be true, but this one I swear is true. Why don't you just be truthful so you never have to lift your hand up and swear that the next thing you're saying is true? So don't do it. And anything outside of just truthfulness is from the evil one. Wow, that's heavy-handed. It's evil. It's evil to oath this and swear that and promise this to prop up your own truthfulness. That, that's evil. But what's not evil? Just be truthful. And then James 5 picks it up uh, in James 5.12 where James says almost the same thing. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no or you'll be condemned. Just, just be truthful. No need for oaths here. So I don't know about you, but my mind raced to passages like that and I thought, well, Sounds like this doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> Sounds like we're not supposed to be vowing things to God. Sounds like that's really dumb or evil or asking for condemnation, to use James' language. So, I don't know. But then you come across verses like in the book of Acts and, and, and chapter 18, uh, Paul took a vow. He was under a vow. In chapter 21 of the book of Acts, there's a group of uh, disciples that are under a vow. And the apostles are like, yeah, yeah, these guys are under a vow. The apostles know it. It's not like they're disobeying. They're, They're under a vow. So how do you have Paul under a vow? How do you have disciples under a vow in the book of Acts if what Jesus was teaching in Matthew was never take a vow? That kind of doesn't make sense. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, he often says, God is my witness, this is the truth, doesn't he? You've seen Paul do that. God is my witness. What I'm writing right now is true. What are you doing, Paul? He must have missed the Sermon on the Mount. Idiot. No, I mean, if Scripture coheres, and there's unity in Scripture, and we have to put these together, Jesus' stark warning in Matthew chapter 5 about taking vows, and then the apostles and the disciples taking vows in the book of Acts, Paul, you know, littering his letters with things like, God is my witness. Uh, What is going on? I don't think Jesus is saying you can never make a vow. I think what's happening in Matthew chapter 5, and I think what James is doing in James chapter 5, is they're combating not vows, but frivolous vows. Rash vows, vows you didn't think about. Vows that don't really count, they're not really weighty. You're just vowing everything. You're on the phone with your mom, and she's like, get out. No, seriously, it's BOGO at the mall. I swear, it's, it's frivolous, it's unnecessary, you're just dropping it, you're, boost, you're, you're boosting your uh, truthfulness in, in the moment. And so what was happening in Jesus' day was people that would say the Pharisees' teaching, it's wrong, it's not wrong, if you swear by God's name, man, you really have to do it. That's really hard to get out of. The valuation is high, five, uh, the, the 20% upcharge on the house. I mean, that's, that's, that's really tough. But if you swear by something else, heaven, close to God, it's holy, it's weighty, but it's not God's name, well, you can get out of that. See, that, that's what they were doing. They're doing what he warned, warned about. You can see reading Leviticus 27, God knows they have sneaky hearts. And they're going to try to get around vows to look holy, but not actually really be very committed. And that's what Jesus was condemning. He's saying Leviticus 27 and Numbers and all those passages about vows were never about 
Just make as many vows as you can to look holy. That was never the intention. The intention was if you're going to make a vow, take it seriously. And so don't vow against something else uh, just to be able to get out of it. That's why Jesus said, if you swear by heaven, who owns it? Who dwells there? If you swear by earth, the earth is God's footstool. It's his. Even the hairs on your head, they're his. You can't swear by anything and not actually swear by God. So if you make an oath, stick to it. And his recommendation was, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that's what he's getting at. He's not saying you cannot make a vow, you cannot make a promise. I think it's not evil to make a promise. It's evil to abuse it. It's evil to make frivolous ones, rash ones. It's evil to take God's name into a vow that you have no intention of keeping. Or maybe you have an intention of keeping it, and then your intention changes. And that is evil. It always was. That's why Leviticus 27 doesn't say, I know it was real hard. I know your schedule got away from you. Don't worry about it. It's no, worry about it. You're in it now. You're in it now. And so I think Matthew 5, James 5, Acts, Paul's letters, Leviticus 27, Numbers, it all goes together because God is communicating, I'm not disallowing you from making vows, but if you make some kind of commitment to me, you need to make good on the commitment. You need to be faithful in the promises that you make to me because I'm God and I'm holy and I'm a commitment keeper. I'm a promise keeper keeper, and so you have to reflect that when you make promises, especially when you make those promises to me. He doesn't command that we make promises. He didn't tell Israel, you have to make promises, but it's allowed, and you see it happening even in the New Testament. If it's made, God demands faithfulness in keeping the commitments that we make to him. So I have a few practical concerns that I think we learn as we reflect on this chapter. Uh, My personality type is to just say, uh, don't make a vow. The reason why I can't say that is because that's not what Leviticus 27 says and that's not what the rest of the Bible says. It says, be careful. And in that warning, and in those warnings, we see that we shouldn't make rash vows. Now, understanding that uh, vows can be made, you need to think about what you're saying and you need to think about your ability to come through on what you're saying. Maybe some of us are too quick to say, yes, I will, when no, you won't. Don't make rash vows. Leviticus 27 is kind of good cop, and then there's passages and numbers that are like bad cop. And it's like, if you don't keep that vow, you're in trouble. That's the heavy-handed passage. Leviticus 27 is like, okay, there's ways out. But they're pricey. You're going to pay a hefty price to get out. But both sides communicate the seriousness of it, and if it's a serious thing, then you need to treat it seriously. I can't stand here and tell you don't ever make a promise to God, but I can stand here and tell you be very careful about making a promise to God. Another warning is to not think of vows as a bargaining system. 
Many people will make a promise to God by saying, God, if you fill in the blank, then I will, and then fill in the blank. If you, if you bless me with this really big house, I'll dedicate one of the rooms to missionaries. If you bless me with this level of income, I'll double my offering to the church. Something like that. God, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate them to the ministry or something, you know, like a Hannah-type prayer. And what you need to recognize is that God is completely self-sufficient and doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your stuff. Everything is already His. If God is completely self-sufficient, independent of anything outside of himself. He's not, his existence is not contingent upon anything else. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need to be served. And if that's true, then you can't trade with somebody like that. It is impos- it's impossible to bargain with somebody that needs nothing from you. They've got everything. You have nothing they need. and You, you can't trade. And so we don't ever want to make a vow making some kind of uh, bargain or trade or deal with God. God, if you this, I'll that. Well, just do it or don't do it. But don't withhold it from God unless he comes through on something specific. And I think for some people, their entire relationship with God is based on a trade. I'll serve you, but if you take this away from me, I'll I'll drop you. Guess what? You're not in. Because whatever that other thing is, that's your God. So we don't ever want to approach him that way. Make your vow, make your promise, make your commitment, but don't try to attach strings to it. It's impossible. And it's disrespectful. Also think about the unnecessary nature of vows. The Bible never prescribes them. Why are you doing it? Again, I'm not telling you don't do it. I'm just, I just want you to think twice about making a promise to God How biblical is it? How important is it? How weighty is it? Before you make it, understanding that the Bible doesn't prescribe vows. It doesn't. It doesn't tell you to do it. So you want to think about those things. I do think vows are sometimes important. And you may come to a place in your life where you Make a commitment or a promise to God. I want to really quickly share with you um, a very old passage from a statement of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, in the 1640s, you know, English Parliament got a bunch of uh, ministers together and said, hey, put, put, put a statement of faith together you know, for unity and things like that. In chapter 22, there's a section called Lawful Oaths and Vows. I think this is an awesome statement of faith, and things are so well put. Listen to what it says. This is not Scripture, but this helps us understand and summarize what Scripture teaches. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear. There's Matthew 5. And therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore... To swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name. Ooh, dreadful name. Have you ever thought about God's name that way? 
or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Now listen, yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God, not required, warranted by the word of God, under the New Testament as well as under the Old, so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken in matters of weight and moment. Love that. Is it a weighty thing? Is it a momentous occasion? Yeah, that's when a vow might make sense. But not a rash one, not a frivolous one, not a throwaway one, not one that you thought of 30 seconds ago. Matters of weight and moment. I think one of those that can easily come to mind is marriage. We live in a throwaway society. We, 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 we recycle everything or throw everything away. Everything is prepackaged. And we treat vows like that as a, as a society. Especially after the no-fault divorce, it's, it's easier. And so no one's asking you to get married. You're not commanded to get married. But if you get married, that's, that's a vow. And it's not just an interpersonal vow. It's a vow that you make before the Lord. I mean, not everyone has to make a vow before the Lord. They can view marriage differently. But the Christian view of marriage is that two people, a man and a woman, are standing before God and making a commitment before God to the marriage. Thus, the commitment is not, I will serve you as long as you serve me. It's, I will serve you regardless of how you serve me because I'm not just making the vow to you. See, the spouse can break the covenant. You can say, my spouse is breaking the covenant. Why should I uphold my side toward that person because you're forgetting the third and most important party in that covenant. And it's not just the vow that you made to the spouse that you think is deficient right now. It's the vow that you made to God who is over the marriage. He didn't tell you to get married. He didn't command you to get married. He didn't ask you to get married. But if you're going to get married and do it that way, that is a vow that you make before God. And you don't make that rashly. You don't snub premarital counseling you take your parents' advice into consideration when your best friends are like, yeah, I don't know. Are you sure you're going to marry them? Pick up on those red flags. Don't just, I, I love him. I love her. Think. This is the rest of your life that you're talking about. And the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the same God, he sees that as a vow made to him. And in the case of marriage, he doesn't give you a shekel number to get out of it. Because marriage is a picture of his relationship with the church, and God doesn't get out of it, and that's why there's no getting out of it. Except for the cases that Jesus and Paul specify. So marriage is a commitment, it's a vow, and I think that is something we should take seriously. Another one that I can think of, and, of course, this is a little more controversial, but it's the vow of membership. I had to think about this. I'm like, is that really a vow? Hmm. If we're standing before the congregation and we're standing before God and we have members stand up here and we say, will you this? Yes, I will. Will you this? Yes, I will. I don't know what else you call it. But a promise or a commitment that a believer is making before the people of God, to the people of God, and before God himself and to God himself himself. 
Now, I struggled a little bit whether to include this in the sermon because some of you are still not sure about membership, and this might just make you go, forget it. You just spent 30 minutes telling us, be careful not making vows. Well, yeah. We don't see a command in Scripture that says you must take a vow to be a member of a church. No. But we see a commitment to get baptized. I think the problem is we see baptism as a ultra-personal, privatized thing, even though we do it in public. We're doing an ultra-personal, privatized thing in front of people, but it's not with people, it's not for people, and I don't think that's biblical. Baptism is your entrance. If you're not a member of a local church, that's because you're not putting down on paper what's supposed to be true in reality. You're a member of the church by virtue of baptism. You don't get baptized and then, then join the church. Baptism is the sign that you have joined the church, capital C. But for those of you who say, I'm joined to the church, capital C, but I'm just going to attend. I'm not going to commit to a church, small c. I just think you have to struggle with a lot of scripture verses that assume that commitment. The service to the church, the leaders that you belong to, the leaders that have to give account over a certain group of people. Are you in that group or are you not in that group? Are you in that group if you just come and sit in a chair on Sundays? Or is there a time where you, where you step up, you stand up, and you say, okay, this is my leadership, this is my church family, these are my spiritual gifts, and these are the local specific people that I serve with my spiritual gift. You can't do that through the internet. And so if you want to hear more about that, you can reject membership, but if you want to hear more about it, you know, in an hour, we'll be downstairs and I'll be talking about those specific things. And I'll just encourage you, let me just lay out some scriptural evidence for you. So I don't want to give in to the fear of pushing away those that are hesitant about membership or hated how membership was done at some other church. Um, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail. I just, you can't say, I don't, I don't make commitments because commitments didn't work in some other place. If you believe that you should be giving a portion of your finances and your income to the work of God through a local church, you can't now not do that because the last church, the pastor ran away with the money. You can't say the last church, the pastor stole money, so now at my church, I'm not going to give money. You can't do that. You can't say the last marriage I had, you know, the person cheated on me, walked away, and I have a biblically legal divorce, the person cheated on me, but now I'm just going to live with somebody and not do marriage vows. You see? You can't change the nature of vows and commitments because of an abuse in the past. So, do churches abuse membership? Yes. Do pastors steal money? Yeah. Is there sin in the clergy? Yes. But we need to look at the Bible and go, what is the Bible showing our actual commitments that we make? And I think membership is one of those that we too often sign very quickly and, and, and many of you don't. Many of you hesitate. And I like that, actually. That's good. You see the weight of it. You see that it's a matter of weight and moment to be a member, and that's good. Lastly, personal commitments. And these can look like anything. These are anything that you might say or commit to God and say, God, I commit this to you. I, maybe you even share it with the church. You share it with your spouse, or maybe it's a, you and your spouse together or something like that. You make a commitment to God. All these things apply. 
to those commitments. And if you're anything like me or like Israel, uh, there are going to be times where you are unable to fully uh, pull through on, on your commitment. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking about commitments and promises you've made that you've broken, maybe really weighty ones. How do you get out? I don't want to lose the specific voice of Leviticus 27 because the emphasis of Leviticus 27 is there is a way out. And it's not through shekels. It's not through 20% upcharge. The way you get redeemed, by, through our, the way we get redeemed from our failed commitments is Jesus, the ultimate promise keeper. He's the one that provides redemption. We don't go back and realize, I can't make amends on everything. I, I must be eternally condemned. You're not eternally condemned if you're in Christ, because Christ redeems us. We recognize that God is the perfect promise keeper. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. So he's the center of all things. But if we're going to live in that forgiveness that Christ provides, if we're going to live as the kind of people that live up to the promises that we make to the Lord, in our marriages, and our membership, and whatever we do. We need to be centered on Christ, the one who all God's promises are centered in, so that we can be faithful in the commitments we make as believers. We want to be careful about the church we attend. We want to be careful about the church we sign up to be a member of. We want to be careful about the spouse, the person that we're considering to be a spouse. We want to be very careful about those things, but when we're in those things, we need God's grace to sustain our commitment because a personal attitude of stick-to-itness is going to get frail and thin really fast. And so I encourage you, if you're feeling frail and thin now in your marriage, there is help. God doesn't just watch you and go, well, you made a commitment. Step up. You know, he, he wants to sustain you. It is when we put Christ to the side and try to sustain our own commitment on our own energy that we burn out quickly in our commitments. So do it as a team. Do it together with other brothers and sisters that are in similar commitments or the same commitments. And lean on God's provision of grace through Jesus Christ to get you through it. Let's pray together.